Andrew, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. Very nice to, to be with you tonight. You too. Lots to discuss. Um, some mixed opinions on the, the uh, Royals in our in our audience and chat, I would imagine. Graham, thanks for joining us. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for asking. So we'll be talking about the monarchy and what future that may or may not have uh, in Britain. Um, before we get into that, maybe, Andrew, you could tell us a little bit about your background. How, how would you describe what you do? Well, I'm a literary agent. I actually represent Graham uh, for a book he's doing, but I also write books uh, on the royal family. Uh, my two most recent books are on the Mountbatten's and on Edward VIII, both of them quite critical. Uh, in one, I accused uh, Dickie Mountbatten of being a paedophile, and the second, I accused uh, the Duke of Windsor of being a Nazi stooge. Uh, and I'm now doing a book on Prince Andrew. Ah, yeah. I wonder where that will end. What, what are the conclusions there, I imagine, will be Who interesting. <laughs> Who knows? Graham, uh, would you like to describe to us uh, what, what is you do? Yeah, I, I, I'm the CEO of Republic, which is a campaign organisation, um, does what it says on the tin. Our uh, aim is to achieve the abolition of the monarchy. And uh, as Andrew just uh, alluded to, I've uh, just got a book in the works it's just come out for pre-order so uh, which is called abolish the monarchy which um essentially makes the case uh for how we why we should do that how we do it and what we get at the end of it does this book uh deal with any of the the arguments for the monarchy a lot of the things we hear such as you know the tourism trade uh up standing in the world those sorts of things absolutely yeah i mean it pretty much starts with, with a lot of that stuff saying that you know all of these arguments don't really stack up um, and then it gets into some of the more serious stuff about the, the position of the crown in the constitution um, and and the fact that there's a really simple democratic alternative on offer. So Graham clearly there representing hardcore republicanism for us today. Andrew, where do you sit? Do you, do you sit on the fence? Are you neutral? Are you, are you pro-monarchy? Where are you? Well, I've read Graham's book. I find it very persuasive. I mean, I'm a monarchist, um, but I want the monarchy to behave better than they do sometimes. And I think there are a number of rogue royals generally the ones I write about, who I think let the side down. Um, but I'm becoming more and more ambivalent about it, having been uh, not a fervent monarchist, but in a sense an accepting monarchist. So we've got we've got uh, abolition versus reform. Then it, it seems here. I think I think I, I'm I'm for my sort of staunch lefty liberal principles. I've always been a Republican. I I, I find it strange to be honest. It's all silly hats weird cultish like practices dogmas it, it mimics too much like a sort of hardcore religion to me i think i think that's the issue i have obviously then you stray into the fact that it's undemocratic it's hereditary power uh, things like that however as i've got a little bit older i've become slightly more affectionate towards the idea of a monarchy i don't know if there's some some comfort in tradition perhaps but graham how could we sort of um replace the tradition of the monarchy uh, and the, the amount of meaning that provides for so many people across the world uh, if we were to abolish it? Well, I think most people are fairly ambivalent about it. I think if you look at polling um, around the Jubilee last year and around other big events, it's you know something in the region of 15 to 20 percent who are enthusiastic and want to celebrate the, these big uh, royal events. So, you know, we shouldn't um, put too much story in how other people feel about it in terms of, you know, what we do instead, we only have to look across the Irish Sea. We have to, you know, Ireland, Iceland, Germany, Finland, you know, all these countries. Um, most of the countries in Europe have uh, democratic uh, elected heads of state, whether directly or indirectly. Um, and, and it works really well. And not only do, do the institutions work well, but they also get to choose some pretty uh, excellent and inspirational um, presidents. So, you know, I think one of the things that has probably struck a lot of people more recently is that they aren't as um dignified and respectful and all the rest of it as people might think there's a lot of criticism about them individually obviously um, prince andrew being the obvious one and i think that in a free and fair election we would not elect charles um and yet there he is i think that is a fundamental problem in a democratic society sure so andrew i mean do the royals have a problem here in terms of the fact they now live in this 
you know, ultra connected, socially network obsessed celebrity culture now. It seems like it's very difficult for them to sort of remain outside of the public eye if they want to remain relevant. You know, the public are interested more than ever in the private lives of these people. Yeah, I think in order for the monarchy to function, it has to sort of remain almost mysterious in a way. Can, can they survive in their current form in this this new climate of just constant interest in people's lives? Well, I think it is difficult because, as you say, there has to be a mystique about them, but at the same time, they have to appear uh, approachable. I think some royals do manage that. I think Kate and William uh, have managed that. Um, but it is, uh, I think, clearly a moment uh, as the Queen die, dies and we, we go move into a new reign uh, that people are going to expect less. I mean, the monarchy, I think, does, does could have a role as, uh, as a sort of unifier for the nation in terms of its charitable role. But, uh, you know, the behavior of a number of the individuals, the fact that they've, in a sense, broken their own privacy, which makes any of the rules that we have now about uh, not being able to see, for example, historical documents relating to the royals, makes a farce of that. So there's got to be reform. They've got to be more open and more transparent. Uh, and I think they've got to behave better. And I think there's always been this trope, which the Crown does very well, between public duty and private pleasure. And there's been a bit too much private pleasure recently uh, and not enough public duty. Graham, I, th I think I'd just ask you as well. So I suppose um, in terms of tradition and the, the public national psyche, perhaps, I think during lockdown, there, there was this moment where the Queen gave her, her speech. I think she quoted Vera Lynn at the time, and that became quite emblematic of this coming together during tough times, this almost warlike mentality. And it did seem to lift a fair number of people. Me personally, someone who's not a monarchist, who's also a Republican, found it quite moving, this, this idea that we all share this one national identity during difficult times. And I don't necessarily think that's uh, an essential thing, like it must come from uh, the Queen or the head of state or whatever. But if we didn't have that, what possibly could replace that in terms of a national unifier if you even think we need a national unifier well i, I don't buy the premise really i mean i don't think the, the queen's speech during the uh, um, lockdown made a significant impact i think that most people forgot about it fairly quickly um the fact that we the only thing we can really remember are the words that she quoted from someone else um <laughs> and it was incredibly brief but I think that, you know, the idea that uh, you're talking about sort of national unity and national identity or, or some kind of unifying factor. You know, if you look at Ireland, you look at uh, Iceland and Germany and all these republics, you know, the notion that they aren't somehow, you know, don't have some kind of united um, sense of their, their selves, their identity, their, their, their national identity, you know, is clearly untrue. You know, so you can, we are united by, you know, common language, common experiences, common culture. Um, and whoever we have as head of state should be able to reflect that and uh, and communicate that. Uh, President Michael D. Higgins of Ireland uh, did that very well and very eloquently, um, as I'm sure other heads of state did around the world. So um, I don't think that that is a serious um, consideration. Whatever we do as a country, um, I think that we can uh, pull together at times of tragedy and celebration. The thing about electing someone, of course, is that when the people of Ireland, for example, I'll go back to, you know, there are other examples, but I'll go back to, the, to Ireland again, um, is that when they were watching and listening uh, to their head of state, this was someone who was just a regular person who had been chosen by them to serve that position. And so, to my mind, that is more unifying and more inspirational uh, than someone who got the job for no reason than her, her father had it before and really got the job because her uncle was um, suspected Nazi sympathizer. Um, and I don't think that is uh, an inspiration. Well, I, I mean, that's it's a good point about, you know, democracy, of course. But I suppose in, in that sense, I mean, we, we elected Boris Johnson and it feels very unlikely he would have had a better effect at that job than the Queen did it in terms of the national response to it. Um, elect, prime ministers are very different to elected heads of state uh, in parliamentary democracies. You know, you can elect someone who can be that um, sort of unifying figure who is apart from and, uh, and above the party political fray. Prime ministers are immediately compromised the moment they become prime minister because they have to make decisions which is going to divide opinion. 
Um, and of course, you know, Boris Johnson is just one of many prime ministers we've had, and he's a particularly um, divisive figure. Um, you know, it's not about uh, picking between him and the Queen, it's about saying we can choose people as they do in other places uh, who can be just as inspirational. I mean, if you look at um, there are two other uh, people from uh, both from the 80s, actually. The president of uh, Iceland, uh, Vigdis Finnbogadottir, was the first woman ever elected to be head of state in the world. Uh, the president of Iceland from 1980 to 1996, hugely um, popular, uh, widely respected. And being the first woman, um, obviously, in Iceland as well, she had a huge impact on uh, gender equality and on um, a whole range of debates that she took up. And uh, Richard von Weizsäcker of Germany uh, made a um, profound and important speech in the mid-80s, which fundamentally uh, sort of changed the way Germans look at their uh, their past in, in relation to Nazi Germany and, you know, really opened up that debate and got people to think about it and to think about who, you know, the difference between the, the guilt of the... Um, uh, the generations that were alive at the time and, uh, you know, how younger generations dealt with it later. Uh, so, you know, these people can make a huge and profound impact um, without being political. OK. I mean, Andrew, do you give much thought to this idea of a national identity and, uh, uh, you know, a national psyche and, and how much the royals play a part of that? Well, I mean, I think the fact that they, you know, they are popular, I think, they're, you know, people want them to go and open things. They clearly have... You know, extensive charitable interest. People want them to be patron, and that makes a huge difference if there's a royal patron. And I think there's also a foreign um, policy element that there's a soft power there that often they can deploy a member of the royal family in a way they couldn't perhaps a political figure. And, and also, I think that there's, there's just a sheer continuity of the rule. The Queen was there for 70 years and was probably the best informed political figure in Britain. Uh, and she was able to do things that perhaps you know, politicians or even a president couldn't do, however distinguished they were. So, I mean, I think we've got the system as it is. Uh, I think the interesting question is, is what will happen in this period around the coronation? Will this be a bringing together of the nation, as we saw when the Queen died? Um, or will there be uh, people beginning to, to, to say, is this in the 21st century the sort of way we want to go? Um, can you think of perhaps anything the royals do offer uniquely that's like somebody that was elected or uh, another figurehead that wasn't monarchy uh, couldn't bring to the table? I think that's maybe the thrust of Graham's point that we could do all this without the monarchy and the monarchy is not essential. Well, as I was saying, the soft power of foreign policy. I mean, the fact that the Queen had been there for so long, uh, that she was way above the, the, the political fray. Uh, and was a wise old bird, you know, she was used at times to to, 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 to help uh, policy and, and Prince Philip as well. But I think the problem with monarchy, you know, one of its strengths and weaknesses is it relies on the individuals who inherit. Uh, and there are clearly going to be some who are better than others. But one would hope that there, there would be this strong sense of noblesse oblige that they could uh, feel, as I say, that they, they, they spoke for the whole nation. And, you know, I know Graham will say, well, you know, a president can do that. But uh, because of their position, they are completely unique and it's different. Graham, maybe you'd want to speak to the soft power in terms of uh, issues of foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've heard this said before. I don't really buy it. And I, I think that, you know, the Queen was on the throne for a long time. But, you know, you can really only argue that that was a benefit after a point at which you can say that she was on there for a long time. I mean, you know, she, what benefit was she when she first became Queen? She was in her 20s. She hadn't had a formal education. She had uh, very, fairly limited sort of um, exposure to the real world. How helpful was she going to be to Churchill or to Eden or to uh, Macmillan? I, I so yeah, no, I don't really buy that. I think that having someone who has experience, who has had a career, um, whether in diplomacy or law or politics or whatever, uh, being head of state is going to be far more useful and effective. And if you look at some of the other royals, um, then in recent years they they have shown themselves to be absolutely dreadful ambassadors. I mean, William and Kate's Caribbean tour last year followed by Edward and Sophie I mean it was uh, rather embarrassing and uh, and you know embarrassing for the country really the way in which they um, failed to represent us well and to respond to all the various arguments around 
colonialism and reparations and so on. And of course, Prince Andrew was um, an ambassador for, for the UK in trade um, for quite a long time and was criticized for his behavior. And, uh, and then of course, um, brought uh, out uh, or dragged our reputation through the mud with his um, uh, various scandals around uh, Virginia Jiffrey and uh, Epstein. So, um, you know, I just don't think that they add much that we couldn't get from uh, from better qualified people. I mean, what I would say about the Caribbean tour is, I mean, that was, you know, that was up to the Foreign Office to brief people to set up the tour. I don't think you can blame the, the principals for that. You know, they were there uh, and and had a set itinerary that was set for them. They didn't make up uh, the the the, the programme. Andrew, just uh, explain the uh, the faux pas of that visit for us, for people who don't know. Well, the faux pas, I think, was that it, it, it seemed like it was this sort of colonial spirit. People, they were driving, well, standing around in, in Land Rovers, there was, a, there was a, a moment where it seemed to me there were school children behind the fence, though in fact they were able to walk around it. But it looked very patronising and very old-fashioned. Uh, but I, I don't think you can blame the, 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 you know, William and Kate. I mean, the, the problem was that the Foreign Office should have been better briefed. Uh, and I think also some of the publicity for it was, was, was not entirely fair. Um, the fence is a good example where it was very easy to... To, to show that they, the tube was separated by a fence and then to find that actually it, was, it wasn't quite that uh, as, as easy as that. So, Graham, I mean, I, sorry, go ahead. I, I think it's difficult to say that they are you know, good ambassadors and good for our soft power and then say that they're not responsible for, their, for the way that they conduct the tour. Yes, of course, the Foreign Office uh, organised things, but you know, if William is a good ambassador, he should spot these pitfalls um, and at least uh, respond to them and avoid them uh, after that. I mean, he, he was well aware that he was going to be standing in a, uh, um, a, a Land Rover in, a, in an outfit that uh, you know, conjured up images of empire. Um, and he put that outfit on and stood, you know, got in the back of that Land Rover without any concern for what it might look like. Um, and uh, Edward and Sophie was even more embarrassing because they just didn't really engage, weren't particularly interested in what was being said to them um, when prime ministers were directly addressing very serious concerns. But I, I, you know, this is not a huge point. I think the, the the bigger point is in terms of the way the monarchy works in the UK. I think that you know we're quite capable as one of the largest economies in the world uh, of you know generating um, goodwill and, and pushing out. Uh, uh, they're promoting our economy and our industry and trade and whatever around the world without the royal family. I think we're quite uh, absolutely uh, capable of doing that. But I think there's uh, bigger issues um, in well, the I UK. Think one of the great successes of the Queen's reign was the Commonwealth, after all, that, you know, that, that, that the empire did evolve into something else, uh, which was a force for good. Uh, you know, so I think that the, the royals can be figures that bring people together in a way that, you know, a single president and, and wouldn't be able to do. Um, I think the, the debate is, is 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 more evenly balanced, perhaps, than 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 you might suggest. I mean, I, I've just finished reading an excellent book by Philip Murphy, a professor of um, uh, uh, from the um, Commonwealth uh, Institute, I think it's called, um, called Empires New Clothes. And I mean, if you do a, a thorough look at the Commonwealth, it doesn't really do an awful lot um, that has any significant impact on the world. Um, there's not really an awful lot there to it. It's a, it's a fairly um, feeble, uh, under-resourced uh, organisation. And I'd say that the Queen wasn't really responsible for it. She didn't uh, come up with it. Her dad didn't come up with it. No, it was a, it was a, a, a result of you know, Britain trying to salvage something from the collapsing empire. Um, and it has some benefit, uh, which is why it's still there. But um, it doesn't really... Uh, do an awful lot, and it would still be there whether we had the monarchy or not. You know, it doesn't it doesn't hinge upon them. Um, it uh, it is a result of government action or inaction. But I mean, Charles is is still the head of the Commonwealth. I mean, that would have been a very obvious moment when uh, the Queen was passing passing on um, to 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 change it, and they didn't want to change it. They seemed happy to have a, a, mon a British monarch uh, who's head of it. Indeed, but, but in, in a way, that's because this doesn't really matter. <laughs> They've got better things to worry about. I mean, more than, something like 96% of the population of the Commonwealth do not have Charles as their monarch, as their head of state. You know, it, it's a, and 75% of countries within the Commonwealth do not have um, our monarch as their head of state. So, you know, the vast majority of Commonwealth countries and citizens um, are in republics. 
Um, but you know, the Commonwealth now compromises its um, claim to uh, its uh, sort of you know, high-minded values by, for example, allowing Sri Lanka to host the Chogham when they were um, uh, accused of serious human rights abuses. And now they've allowed the admittance of uh, Gabon and Togo um, uh, into the Commonwealth when they are also, you know, uh, not democracies and uh, face serious criticisms of human rights. So it's, um, yeah, I don't think the Commonwealth is something to get excited about. This is a very civil English disagreement, isn't it? <laughs> um, Andrew, I suppose something that really interests me, I mean, I, as a Republican, I've still got a, you know, a fondness for the late Queen and there's a stoicism about her, a dignity. Uh, it was very difficult to pin her down on items of, you know, politics. She seemed almost neutral in that sense. Uh, with Charles, can Charles, that's not the case, is it? We've got a, a lot of history, a lot of writing, a lot of comments. He, he seems very open about what he believes on certain topics. Is that going to be a problem for him, do you think? Well, I mean, he says it's not going to be a problem, uh, and he's clearly got to, you know, behave uh, rather like his mother did. But um, as you, you know, she had no real preparation. Uh, we didn't really know much about it until she came to the throne. Whereas he's had, in effect, fifty fifty years of his adult life where we've been pretty clear about where he stands on things, you know. And we see it now with William. I mean, he's clearly taking on issues like the environment. Uh, and Charles, you know, for 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 all the criticisms, has been ahead of his time. He has championed things which we now believe are, are right, particularly to do with the environment. So, uh, you know, I think in some ways they can be a very useful focus to raise issues. Uh, and as long as it doesn't seem party political, I mean, these bigger issues like the environment, uh, I, I think, you know, very few people would, would, would argue that those are not issues of some concern uh, that need to be, to, to be highlighted. Graham, your thoughts on on Charles and his political leanings? I don't know if you ever read the late and great Christopher Hitchens on the royal family, but he absolutely detested uh, at the time Prince Charles, I believe, for his his political views and his political almost activism. Yeah, I mean his political views are not mainstream; they um, they can be quite um, uh, quite a long way from mainstream. Particularly, you know, he lobbied for. Um, homeopathy, for example, to be paid for on the NHS, which almost every doctor on the NHS thinks is a, is a nonsense. Um, and the the problem with uh, his, uh, I, I mean, firstly, I don't think that we shouldn't know what someone's politics is. I think we should know what someone's politics is, and we should know what they're doing behind closed doors. And then we can judge whether or not they're being impartial and doing the job properly. Uh, we didn't know what the Queen's politics were, and we also didn't know what she was doing behind closed doors. So we had no idea um, whether or not she was trying to influence things, although John Major said that, um, admitted that she did seek to influence and was successful in, on occasion. Um, with Charles, we had a pretty good idea of what his politics are, and we don't know what he's doing behind closed doors and cannot know. Um, the Freedom of Information Act does not allow us any access to what he's doing. So for all we know, he is using his um, significant access and leverage to uh, persuade government to change policy on various things. Now, they can lobby for uh, political agenda, and they can also lobby for their own private interests as well. Um, so they can have themselves, as they have done many times, exempted from a whole raft of views. Now, in terms of their politics, I would, I mean, I do think this, there's this idea that, you know, because we all sort of agree, or most people agree that um, the environment is a serious issue, that therefore it's not a partisan issue and therefore it's okay for them to wade into. The problem with that is that the environment is hugely political because the way in which we challenge or deal with climate change, um, you know, it carries an awful lot of cost uh, that people have to bear and who bears that cost? Now, the people that cause the most carbon emissions are the the richest people in the country and the richest countries in the world. Um, but the cost is often borne by uh, poorer people and by um, by less powerful people. And Charles is a hypocrite on the environment. You know, he always flies around by helicopter and you know, um, uh, or, or by large jets and so on. And he has multiple huge homes which are always being heated and um, and lit, whether he's there or not. Um, so he has a huge carbon footprint. Um, he, you know, he will not support, for example, um, uh, Extinction Rebellion's calls for a ban on private 
helicopter flights because he enjoys his flights himself. So he's a hindrance. You know, he, he starts to direct the. He will influence the debate away from the from challenging the richest and largest carbon uh, polluter, polluters um, because that's in his interest to do so. Um, and uh, you know, he flew from heli by helicopter across the country from Gloucestershire to Cambridge to lecture environmental scientists on the need to reduce the amount of carbon from uh, flights. So it's a bit of a mad um, situation to be in. So no, I don't, I don't buy the idea that they are environmentalists. Same with William as well. I think he's uh, somewhat, something of a hypocrite as well. He uses helicopters all the time. Um, and as I said, it is a, a hugely political issue as to how we tackle uh, climate change and who bears the costs. I mean, where it's, I, I do agree with Graham is I think there does need to be more transparency, more transparency about their finances uh, and um, this freedom of exemption uh, uh, that they have for any communication with the royal family, particularly in historical I don't know if anyone else is experiencing a loss of sound from Andrew, but I think we may have just lost you for a moment, Andrew. Can you hear us okay? Uh, no, you've you appear to have turned into a cyborg, unfortunately. We're having some technical move, issues. I'm sorry about that. You have to read my lips or leave it leave it to go. <laughs> Can you hear me? How's your signing? Um, yeah, uh, I think you may have come back in. Just say hello to us again, Andrew. Hello? Ah, I think you're back. If you wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind just starting from the top of that point, please. I think we missed almost all of it. Yeah, uh, I mean, what I would say is, if you're going to have a monarchy, then it, you have to have a certain amount of pomp. I mean, uh, this has been one of the debates for the coronation: how simplified it should be. And, and, and um, you know, the, the royal family, of course, are hypocrites at times, uh, saying one thing and, and doing another. But you know, again, they're often matters of security. They're doing a lot of things in each day. They have to be able to move quickly between those events. So I think one has to give them a little bit of a leeway uh, in the way they behave. I think they can still have the right, the right sentiments, even if, as Graham says, sometimes they don't um, do as they as they say. Graham, I think what's what's always fascinating me about this, and I suppose you got you got close to the idea before when we were talking about the sort of wealth and luxury they enjoy, you know, and then swanning around in private helicopters whilst lecturing us about the environment. And and at the moment we we're facing a real, you know, cost of living crisis. I think the term or the expression rather being thrown around is choosing between heating or eating, and we that's juxtaposed, uh, um, sorry, contrasted with you know literal crowns, palaces, exuberance, things like that. And what strikes me as particularly interesting about this is I, I'm I'm from a working class background in the north of England, and to me it would seem completely alien that a working class person would look up to the monarchy and, and think that's a valuable thing. But everywhere I look in my you know uh, part of the country, uh, the uh, working class northwest, I see people who absolutely love the monarchy. I mean this this is even something that extends to my own house. Household. My, my fiance is an ardent monarchist. It causes many disagreements in our house. My, my brother, um, most of my family. And it just seems how, how can we explain that kind of mentality where people who are um, working to make ends meet, who are probably hit hardest by cost of living and, and can't possibly comprehend the wealth and privileged um, kind of that, that's involved with being part of the monarchy. How can they then be for it in such a strong sense? Well, I mean, there's a there's a, a lot of I think it's just the way it's presented all the time. I think that we are not really given a clear picture, um, an honest picture. Um, you know, we are told all these things about you know, some people think that they are self-funded in some way, that um, it's all noble and, you know, um, regal and uh, something to be celebrated. Um, and, you know, this is drummed home a lot. Um, and so I, I don't know that people, and I don't know that they're necessarily engaging with the detail of what the institution is, but it's part of, uh, for a lot of people, it's um, a part of their sense of identity of being British. So I think it's that. Um, I think the what I find is that when I engage with people in, in more depth, then people do change their mind and they start to think more critically of it. And they go, oh, OK, fair enough. That's not quite what I thought the monarchy was. Um, and I think we've seen this quite a few times where people suddenly think, hang on, that's not the monarchy I thought we had. Um, we had it with, I think, this was what was happening when Diana died, is that you know, the reaction 
the public reaction to the way in which they responded to the Queen's death, I think, was was not a Republican thing. It was just kind of a, hang on a minute, why aren't they being the people that we thought they were in responding to the death of Diana? And I think that same with things like um, the Oprah interview um, and Andrew and so on, people are kind of going, okay, this isn't the, the institution or the family that I thought it was. So, you know, people will change their minds. And for, but for a lot of people, it is just a kind of a, a gut feeling or an emotional attachment that is tied up with um, what they think being British is. But I would say that most people are not staunch monarchists. You know, staunch monarchists are um, very much in a minority, um, probably fewer of them than there are staunch Republicans now, because you know people wanting to get rid of the monarchy is um, that number. Do we have any up. any um, clear polling data on these opinions, Graham, that you're aware of? Well, I mean, on the simple question of do you want to get rid of it, Mark, the support for um, keeping it has dropped from around 75% down to as low as 55% in some polling. Um, the highest polling for getting rid of it is up around 31%, up from about 20% um, not that long ago. Um, the, there's a poll just now a couple of weeks ago saying, are you proud that we have a monarchy? And that number has dropped to 43%. So. Uh, but of that, even of that 55 to 75, whatever the number is, who want to keep it, a substantial number of those people are just saying, look, I don't really mind that much, don't care that much, but, you know, on balance, I'd be happy to keep it. So they're not staunch monarchists necessarily as people who are just happy to carry on with the status quo. But if we look at all the polling around the two big weddings and the two jubilees over the last 12 years, uh, Oh, we appear to have just lost Graham's audio. Sorry, he's back, Graham. Um, the yeah, the two weddings and two jubilees over the last twelve years, uh, two thirds to three quarters of people were not interested on every occasion. So, you know, it's quite a, a divided um, uh, and, a, and a mixed picture, if you like, of how people feel about it. Um, the other thing it says that on that, when there's sort of you know twenty-five to thirty percent saying get rid of it, there's also another fifteen percent who are saying. I don't know whether we should get rid of it, which suggests that they clearly have reservations about the monarchy, but they haven't quite come down on the side of abolition. So there's, you know, it's getting quite high, that number of people who have concerns. What do you make of this polling data, Andrew? I mean, do you, would you be confident that the, the monarchy could survive some sort of referendum? Well, I think, I mean, I, I, I haven't got access to the, to the data that perhaps the Graham has, but I would suspect that the younger uh, generation are less uh, inclined to support monarchy. And so gradually these figures will, will change. Uh, I, I don't get the sense that the, young, uh, the, the younger generations really feel that the monarchy speaks to them. And that must be a concern to, to Charles. And they, I mean, they've been very much pushing the sense of the, the family of the nation, several generations. It's not this gerontocracy with the queen there in her 90s. You know, they're, they're, they're actually bringing out uh, to, to promote the firm, you know, Louis and, and, and George and, and Charlotte. So the, there's a conscious effort to, to make it feel that it appeals to a younger, a younger group. Uh, and clearly, William and Kate are having to shoulder a lot of this. Um, but, you know, we haven't also talked about Harry and, and Meghan and, and, you know, the sense that, that if they had remained as part of the royal family, that would have, in a sense, broadened perhaps its appeal. Uh, and it still seems to be, uh, you know, hunting, shooting, fishing uh, sort of group of people, a very narrow mixture of people that they mix with in terms of their own lives, um, however much they want to project this image of being the, 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 the family of the nation. Graham, I mean, it's moving on to Harry and Meghan, and that's a great segue, Andrew. Thank you. Um, how how much of a blow have they struck to the the reputation of the monarchy and their their standing within British society with some of the revelations they've uh, released since you know coming out of the royal family? We've had Netflix documentaries, we've had Spotify podcast, Oprah interviews. A lot of it seeming to be very damning of the royal family. Yeah, I think it is hugely damaging, and um, it's not going to go away. That book is still on sale. It's going to carry on selling uh in huge numbers um the netflix series is there i mean i think the crown the netflix drama the crown um probably doesn't help as well because that's bringing to life a lot of the scandals that uh people my age and older can remember from the 80s and earlier um but i think that harry uh and megan is damaging for a whole host of reasons part of it is the opening it you know sort of the shining a light on some of the personal stuff and the family and and all the rest of it Part of it is just this nagging 
doubt that they can really adapt to accommodate people who don't fit their very narrow um, sort of uh, social set, if you like, you know, and, and Megan was very different. Um, I think the fact that uh, a black woman was not felt, uh, not made to feel welcome uh, is also hugely damaging. Um, so yeah, I think it, it, it's it's a problem. I mean, really, the, the you know, when I was growing up, the monarchy was this, or the royal family was, you know, they could pack out a um, uh, the balcony, there'd be all these, you know, princes and dukes and, and whatever. Um, and now we're reduced to, you know, Charles and Camilla, Kate and William, and there's not much else. And that, none of those four are particularly uh, interesting or inspiring. And then on the sidelines, you've got Harry who's continually a reminder of all these issues and Andrew who is a continual, continual reminder of a whole load of other issues, um, which also not just reflects badly on him, but also on the on the wider institution the way that they have uh, sought to protect him. Andrew, you said something interesting moments ago, which I don't think I've heard. And this, this idea that if Harry and Meghan had remained within the royal unit, they would have been an asset. Uh, how, in what ways do you think that, that could have been the case? Because it feels to me like since they've left, their um, popularity with the British public doesn't seem particularly high. I'm not sure if that's directly related to the way they've left or the fact that they're not part of the royal family anymore. But in, in what way could they have been an asset? Well, I mean, they were very much promoted as the Fab Four. It was this new dynamic, uh, you know, the two brothers who were close and their partners coming in. Uh, they were being brought in and given jobs like the Commonwealth uh, and elsewhere. So I think that this idea that they weren't made welcome, I don't think is 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 fair. I mean, all all the evidence I've seen is is that they were made a welcome and, and there was a great deal of, of sympathy for her uh, and support. And we saw that at the wedding. We saw that Charles walking her up the aisle. Uh, we saw the way that the press covered her. Uh, and for whatever reason, that clearly that relationship broke down. But I think one of the reasons that they are so unpopular is this issue with Harry and Meghan is not uh, about not fitting in uh, and being made to feel welcome. It's about people trying to destroy the institution. And they've been vicious in their attacks, uh, personal attacks on, on King Charles and on uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales. Uh, they've been real hypocrites themselves in terms of the way they've behaved with the, the, their sort of celebrity lifestyle. And I think people really don't like that. They, they, they don't want to be lectured to by people who are complete hypocrites. So uh, they haven't been, shall we say, a, a very good role model uh, in terms of what the options might have been. I think, you know, they've been the, the, the bringers of their own downfall. Uh, and I don't think this country is racist and, and, and wouldn't have wanted to include them. I think the sad thing is there was every opportunity for them to be, uh, to be part of a, a, a new look monarchy. And I think there was perhaps a failure by some of the palace officials uh, to deal with it. But from what one can see and is coming out, a lot of this was premeditated. A lot of it was organized. This is not people responding to, to events. This is people trying to create them and almost create a sense of rejection so that they could actually fight back. Um, I, I think Graham has talked about Spare being there um, and, and do very well. But I mean, we've also, of course, got his promised other book. We've got the possibility of her doing books. But I, I suspect that the sympathies are, are changing. We've seen that even in the States. Uh, and a lot of people feel sorry for the royal family. I think it may well, you may find those, that, that, that those polling figures actually improve for the royal family as a result of what they've uh, gone through and the dignity uh, with which they've responded to these attacks. Graham, I would imagine that you probably had no love for Meghan and Harry while they were part of the royal family, but has your fondness for them grown since they've been on the outside chipping away? No, not really. I mean, I, I, I observe these things. I'm not particularly interested in celebrity or royals. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would agree that they, they've probably been hypocrites as well. I mean, I think that um, celebrities that uh, champion causes and all the rest of it often are um, because they're very, very rich and very rich, rich people live very rich lifestyles. And so when it comes to things like the environment and um, or trying to understand people who are in much more difficult um, situations, it, it's, it's always tricky. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't think that the royal family responded with much dignity in, in relation to this. I mean, silence isn't dignified when you're being accused of things. And I think that um, we ought to be getting answers from them about um, some of these accusations. And um, I, I think that, uh, I think it just, there's no way it can't be damaging to them because, well, you know, 
before we didn't have all this information and now we have all this information and yes some of it might be exaggerated some of it might is obviously very personal but um you know it, it can't possibly uh, not be damaging for them in the long term well, what we've got is a family spat that's been played out in public. Um, you know, you say that they have to respond to these accusations, but I think the proper place to respond would be within the family uh, and not, you know, with uh, interviews with Oprah uh, and making documentaries with Netflix. I mean, Sorry, go on, Brema. It's a, I mean, you know, it's a hereditary monarchy and they talk about the family and they promote the family and they use the family to say, look, you know, we're, we're an important institution. We, you know, we give something because, you know, being a family is part of the selling point. So if the family has a problem, then uh, you know, not all of it, but some of it certainly needs to be addressed. And I think there were some accusations which um, do raise questions, particularly around uh, um, attitudes towards race and the treatment of uh, Megan. You know, she's made these accusations, they need to be looked at. And uh, well, but she, sorry, sorry to drop, but I mean, she actually rode back from that. I mean, Harry made the point that actually, you know, that wasn't what they were saying. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's all very well to make allusions without naming people uh, uh, and uh, to, to, to hint at things. But I, I thought it was very interesting that, you know, in his publicity for, for his for Spare, he has actually, they haven't pursued that as an issue. Um, so I, I think some of these accusations, once they begin to be examined, are, are found actually to have no validity whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I, I seem to remember Prince Harry talking very publicly and thanking the public how welcoming they were uh, of Meghan right up until the point he decided to distance himself. But looking over some of these revelations from the book, I mean, one of the ones that got the most attention with this idea of him and um, William getting into a physical altercation. And on the face of it, when I looked at that, it just seemed to look like two brothers having a scrap in the way that two brothers sometimes fall out. It didn't really seem to tell us anything about the monarchy uh, or them as individuals. It just felt like airing dirty laundry in public. Do you think any of these revelations are particularly significant, Graham? Yeah, I mean, I don't buy this idea that, um, you know, it's just two brothers. They weren't young brothers. You know, I can't remember um, physically assaulting my brother. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm sure we had scraps when we were kids. But, I mean, these these guys are in their late 30s when this happened. Um, and I think it does uh, reflect poorly on them. I think, I think a lot of what um, has been said, not just in spare, but also there are other stories about, you know, the princes having uh temper tantrums and just generally being quite petulant i think it reflects very poorly on them and i think going back to what i said before i don't think that if we had a free and fair election where either william or charles was on the ballot paper and a bunch of other um excellent candidates were also on the ballot paper and we had you know public debate and we could sit down and, and properly interview them and scrutinize them i don't think they would be elected not, not in a million years because they can't cope with that kind of scrutiny and they don't like being challenged and uh, criticized um and i think that some of that comes out in some of these uh, some of these revelations well i'd say that two th i mean two things i mean you talk about revelations but of course we're only seeing one side of the story here we haven't heard you know anything being verified or any any other point being made it's just a series of assertions that we you know we don't know if they're true or not and I, I, you know clearly uh, 30 year olds shouldn't be scrapping but i think with the degree of scrutiny that they receive and the pressures they have, and you see the sort of uh, hounding of them by the press, you know, sometimes people do snap. People are, all, are human. Uh, and whether we had a president or, or, or we have a monarch, you know, I think we have to accept that people under this degree of scrutiny will sometimes be caught behaving in a way that they may later regret. The thought that if an MP or minister um, was found to have physically assaulted his own brother. Um, there would be serious questions about whether they carry on in that job. I think that um, you know, it is not something which we would uh, dismiss as being uh, a brotherly scrap. So, you know, I think we need to apply the same standards as we do to um, other public figures. Um, and we should, you know, we should expect the, the very highest standards. And I don't think that's anything that we um, do get from them. I think they generally behave in a way which is well below the standards we ought to expect. Well, as you say, the scrap, we've only heard one version of events. So I think... We're yeah, yeah what's, what's the out. phrase? Uh, recollections may vary, I think. <laughs> we've only had one recollection. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, Gray, maybe, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your campaigning for Republic. I mean, explain to us the uh, the emphasis behind the Not My King hashtag. Yeah, I mean, it's very simple, really, is that, uh, you know, we have a head of state who's there only because his mother was head of state beforehand. Um, in a demo democratic society, uh, heads of state should be there because we have chosen them. Um, so Not My King is a simple statement, the principle that, you know, we don't recognise Charles as being a head of state in that sense, in a moral sense. Um, and we will be uh, organising a large protest at the coronation. I imagine there'll be some other protests there as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we will be driving home that point that we, instead of having um, uh, a coronation, which is a fairly daft um, ceremony anyway, and most other monarchies don't have coronations because they realise they were fairly daft a long time ago, um, instead of having a coronation, we should be having a, a, a public debate and an election. And um, I think that, you know, the big difference between uh, a republic and a monarchy is the difference between being a spectator and a, and a participant. And I think that in a democracy, we should be participants in this process of choosing a head of state, not spectators, where we are told, you know, he's here he is, uh, he's great, you've got to believe that, we're not going to tell you anything that goes on behind closed doors, you're just going to have to believe he's great. Um, and even if you don't think so, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and if people think that Charles is wonderful and should be the head of state, then, you know, vote for him. But, you know, I think the, the monarchy is a, is, is a way of turning around to everybody else and saying, well, you know, you, you don't get a vote. You know, it's only the people that, that like Charles that get their man in the job. When you when you speak of protesting the coronation, how concerned are, are you in terms of overreach from the, the police, for instance? Because we, I mean, during I think the 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 death of the queen and the the public's uh, a few members of the public rather were removed from uh, royal gatherings and things for shouting their um, you know uh, critical opinions and, and things like that. And to me personally, I find it distasteful to choose the death of the queen to do that, but. I don't think being distasteful should require you to be hauled away by a police officer, especially when, you know, you're, you're, you're literally speaking truth to power in that sense. How worried are you about police over uh, overreach in, in terms of dissidents? Optically, well, I'll, I'll say something about the protest at the time of the Queen's death, because it wasn't just the Queen's death and it wasn't the Queen's death that they were protesting. They were protesting the accession of a new king. And that sure. is, you know, and you can't... Um, argue for a hereditary monarchy in which everything hinges on births, deaths and marriages and then say that you can't uh, argue the issue and debate the issue at those moments in, in the process. So, you know, the death of a monarch is um, political in the sense that it's also the accession of a new uh, uh, king and therefore protesting was entirely um, legitimate and it was outrageous that those protests were, um, protesters were arrested. Um, as far as the coronation, I've actually had a meeting just this afternoon with the Metropolitan Police um, and, you know, they've uh, given us every assurance that as far as they're concerned, peaceful protests will be allowed to um, be carried out wherever they, you know, wherever the public are permitted to be. Um, and we intend to have uh, hundreds of people at least. Um, we've already got several hundred people saying they're going to be there um, at the coronation as close to the, the main event as we can be. Andrew, do you have any concerns about free speech in the UK in, in regards to voicing your opposition to the monarchy, given what we, we've seen uh, at pre previous gatherings and, and protests? Well, I'm a great believer in free speech. So, I mean, I, I you know, it's interesting, you know, it's, it's very good that uh, Graham's had this meeting with the Met and, the, and been given these assurances because, you know, I, it, we live in a democracy where we are allowed to, to hold different views and to express those views. Uh, and I think it's appalling that people were arrested um, uh, after the Queen died, um, because uh, you, you made the point about good taste. There were it was in since uh, the focus was on the, in effect the funeral of, uh, of 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 the Queen, but I think Graham's absolutely right. It was also a moment for the accession. But I think my own feeling was it was probably bad taste. You know, this was a family that was in, in grieving, and it was not really the, who it had to be in public. This was not the time to make those protests. The time may be at the coronation, and that is the proper accession, not the moment when someone has just died. Sorry, I think Graham just wants to come back in on that. I think his microphone's just muted for the moment. Ah, there we go. Yeah, Charles is head of state, and he should be there um, at least defending our values as a country, and he has said nothing at all about these arrests. 
Now, in 2013, the Dutch queen uh, abdicated and her son became king. And at the King's Day, which is an annual event, um, uh, Hans Mason, this uh, Republican, uh, Dutch Republican, stood in the middle of the crowd on his own. There was someone else uh, with him, but she was um, the other side of the square, I think. And he just held up a sign and um, the saying abolished the monarchy. And the Dutch police took him away, put him in a van, held on to him for a couple of hours, and then let him go again. And the king himself apologized. Charles has said nothing. And I think that's, again, a poor reflection. He doesn't want to engage with anything other than his own narrow interests. And he doesn't want to do anything other than what he is already, you know, sort of decided is going to do. He doesn't, he ought to have said very clearly of course you know freedom of speech is really important of course dissent is really important um and he doesn't he, he's, he's just completely ignored it and i think that's a real but, shame but isn't one of the points that he is above politics he shouldn't be interfering uh with with whatever's going on with the with the with the uh, law enforcement agencies um you know i, I don't think you can be criticized for um, for that isn't yeah, Graham, isn't there a big difference between uh, upholding the principle of free speech in general and openly disagreeing with the police? I think that you can um, very make a very clear statement, as anyone can, as a, you know, as the Prime Minister could and didn't, um, that, you know, there should be, um, it doesn't have to be a specific comment on a specific case, but as, you know, the, the king of, uh, the Dutch king did do this, did apologise, you know, but they could have said, look, these people were being arrested in my name because they were, you know, criticising me, then it's probably reasonable to comment and say, look, you know, the values of our country are free speech, um, the right to dissent. And to remain completely silent on these things, I think, is appalling. Well, the um, debate was held in the press. I mean, isn't that the place for it to be held rather than, you know, the head of state uh, w w jumping in? What's the point of the what's the point of the head of state? I mean, this is the thing: is that you know, the head of state should be there to uh, reflect and represent our values. And if you have someone in, uh, well, I mean, any of that, as I said before, about Richard von Weizsäcker has um, made a, a powerful speech about the way Germany reflects on its past, um, and other heads of state around Europe have uh, have also made these sorts of statements and uh, talked about these sorts of things. These, these kind of broad issues i mean if we are talking well, about one minute saying he's, he, if we're talking if we're saying that he's okay talking about the environment which is hugely complicated and, and very political then surely he can say something about some fundamental values which almost all of us believe in which seem to be under attack by um by police officers arresting people protesting uh, against the king you know it just seems like the obvious time when he should be saying something well i mean i can see i suppose there's one interesting episode we haven't talked about which is when the queen uh, went to Ireland and there was that great moment of reconciliation and an apology for what had happened in the past. So, I mean, these things do happen. Um, and I suppose that is an element of getting involved in in politics there. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a very nuanced thing. And, and you know, I, it was one man, I think, who was, who was arrested for, for, for protesting, wasn't it? Isn't there a sorry, isn't there a larger problem here as well that the UK does have rather harsh speech laws and codes that are very uh, it poorly defined? And it may actually be the case that the police acted well within their rights and, and the law as the law is stated in the UK and, and, and in terms of free speech. So it might have put Charles in a position where he was actually contradicting uh, the legal stance on these things. It's a, it's a matter of principle. I mean, the point is that, you know, Charles has spoken up on human rights in places like um uh, china and iraq um he hasn't spoken up on <laughs> these fundamental values in his own country um he also doesn't criticize human rights abuses in places like bahrain uh jordan or um uh, qatar because he's friends with the people that uh, that run those places so you know there is a uh, i think it is highly questionable what he chooses to uh, speak on. I don't think well, it's unreasonable to expect a head of state to, um, at the very least, uphold our most cherished values. Well, I think to be fair, I mean, you know, real politique means that a lot of other people aren't criticizing some of these regimes in the Middle East. You know, we've seen terrible things happen in Saudi Arabia. Everyone's saying we'll have nothing to do with them. And then, of course, because we need them to buy arms or we need oil or whatever it is, you know, governments are are engaging. So, you know, I don't think you can you can just isolate Charles acting badly 
you know, this is just as living in the real world. Well, I, again, I think that we, you know, we ought to be able to decide who our head of state is on whether or not and, and judge them accordingly. I mean, you may well think that Charles is, is doing nothing wrong. Uh, I don't agree. And therefore, we didn't get say that. Choose, well, whatever in this particular context. But I mean, I, 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 the point is, we, there are clearly concerns about the way he behaves and the, his values and his choices that he makes. And therefore, we should when we have this debate, it should end in a vote on who we want as a head of state. Um, but that's not going to happen. So, I mean, at a basic fundamental level, um, you know, you, if you like Charles, if you think he should be head of state, vote for him, uh, but don't tell everyone else they can't vote for someone else. That, is, but, that should be a, a very simple uh, democratic point. And, the, and the, the alternative to the monarchy is, you know, is a very straightforward democratic system, which not only gets rid of the monarchy and has a, an accountable head of state that we can choose, but also uh, opens up the way to improve our constitution uh, right across the board. But you say we're not going to have a referendum, and the reason we're not going to have a referendum is there isn't really a majority of the population who want the referendum. I mean, the, even with your figures, uh, even if some of them are neutral or, or, or not quite sure, we do not have a majority who are positively agitating for uh, a change in the system. Sorry, Graham. I think are you Sorry. back with us? Sorry. I um, I wasn't referring to a referendum. I was referring to a vote for our head of state. I'm saying that we we um, you know we we shouldn't be uh, you know debates about the royals. I often see these in the in the press or in radio phone-ins. You know, do you think Harry should be going to the coronation? Do you think Queen uh, Camilla should be the queen, etc.? And it makes me laugh because all these debates can go around and around in circles, but it's not a democracy in sense of the monarchy and they're not interested <laughs> uh, they will do what they want to do and you know it shouldn't be like that if we are debating whether or not charles is fit to be head of state there should be an opportunity at some point to then decide whether he is head of state um, in other words there should be elections and if he wants to be head of state he can put himself up for election he can stand in the studio with five other candidates and debate the issues he can answer these questions and, and concerns about his record um, and then everyone can make an informed decision. Well, but one of the reasons why the, there isn't the pressure is because we don't allow we, we you know he isn't he doesn't allow that kind of scrutiny. He doesn't put himself up for um, sort of news night uh, interviews. He doesn't um, debate the issues. He doesn't uh, come clean on all of the things that is well, going on behind closed doors. There is extraordinary scrutiny of the royal family. I mean, they're in the papers every day, and everything they do is 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 followed. Hang a minute. Um, I've got a solution here. I'm a celebrity royal edition. <laughs> we had it's a royal knockout, and that didn't go very well. <laughs> but if you look at the election in 2011 in for Ireland, you know they had a range of different candidates, and Michael D. Higgins was very clearly the the best and most powerful uh, in, a, as a, um, a really inspiring, um, interesting, and eloquent leader. And he was elected and then re-elected for a second time unopposed, um, and. You know, I don't buy the idea that there's scrutiny. Scrutiny isn't simply being talked about. Scrutiny is being able to, um, you know, actually challenge them directly um, to have full access to all the information that we need to, you know, they're not covered by the Freedom of Information Act. Well, the I mean, you know how that... difficult it is, Andrew, getting stuff out of their archives. You know, exactly. Is... And that's why there is scrutiny. I mean, why people like me even who are, you know, professed monarchists are challenging these things. I mean, they, they shouldn't be given a free ride. Well, uh, gentlemen, I would we, like to see more sorry, change. We have about two minutes left, so I think it might be a good idea if Andrew, if you can possibly sum up in, in a minute why you think the royal family are of worth and why you think they're worth keeping, that'd be wonderful. Well, the fact is that the people want them to stay. We haven't got a move uh, for them to go. Uh, this is the public consensus, you know, voting with their feet in effect here. Um, so I, I just don't, I think it's a side issue. Um, I think they do provide a role as the sort of unifying force in the, in the country. I think we're going to see this with the debates over the breakup of the, of the United Kingdom uh, and, and Scottish devolution and independence. So uh, I don't think there's any great demand for them to go. So I, 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 uh, in some ways, the case has to be made by by Graham. Graham, a minute to tell us why the royal family should be abolished. 
Yeah, well, it's uh, unprincipled. Um, it's a corrupt institution, in my view, and it's bad for our democracy. It, it leaves us without an effective head of state um, and, uh, and a very powerful prime minister. So, um, you know, whichever way you cut it, it doesn't live up to the standards that we expect in, of people in public life. Um, it doesn't get proper scrutiny. There isn't proper free uh, and open, uh, rigorous debate on, on all the various uh, things that happen. I mean, um, we're still waiting for the police to investigate um, uh, Charles over accusations of cash for honours, and they're just not doing that. So, yeah, there are a whole host of reasons why the institution is not fit for purpose. Uh, the principled one is one of the most powerful, and the simple truth is there is a very democratic alternative on offer. And I think that we will see the polls shifting over the next few years, and, uh, and at some point we will get rid of it. Just made it in under a minute. Fantastic. Gentlemen, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you very much for putting your points across so eloquently and with civility as well. I, I appreciate your time and, and uh, I'll, I'll let you get back to what's left of your evening. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Nice to speak to you.